Ross Ulbricht is serving a double life sentence without parole for all nonviolent charges for creating a website. Please help free this peaceful man. Go to freeross.org and sign and share the petition. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dissecting Liberty podcast. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Cotton Arkist. Hello. And we have on pause from the Gaslight Hour. Good evening, folks. And uh, today we're going to be talking about what makes a culture um, prone to uh, valuing liberty. And um, we're going to get into that. But before uh, we do, I just want to mention that my connectivity is a little bit spotty. So I may go silent in parts of this episode, but we'll see. So uh, anyway, pause. Why don't you get us started on our topic? So. Not exactly sure where you gentlemen would even like me to start, but I think the first topic that has to be tackled before you can really get into the weeds on a subject like this is just what exactly is culture. And we need a really firm understanding of what a culture is and what sort of milieu they develop in before you can even talk about whether X, Y, or Z culture is conductive to a thing in the first place. So, with all of that being said, then, I think we need to talk about culture being in context, a set of sort of regional or even localized beliefs and traditions, because that's really what it narrows down to. You know, culture is certainly not bounded by national borders or by racial lines or by really anything you can even imagine. It's it's almost... It's almost like soaked not into the soil, but into the souls and the hearts of people who live within indefinite bounds. Mm-hmm. You know, and I think there's an outwardly geographical limit to where a culture can be present, but it's not there's not hard lines around it, obviously. Well, especially with the the advent of uh online communities, uh you see culture being permeated through that. And so like, like you're saying, it's not um, dictated by geographical uh, limitations. Yeah. And it's certainly not dictated by Dunbar slots either or anything of that sort, but there is a sort of six degrees of separation effect going on where it does certainly diffuse itself across online communities or non-localized communities, but that the further you get from whatever the theoretical epicenter is, the less rooted it is. And I think that, too, is a component you have to discuss with culture, because I've actually made the claim a couple of times that I'm not entirely sure the United States even actually has developed a culture yet, being such a young nation geographically. I have a couple of things uh, to put forth, and I'll see if y'all agree with this uh firstly i think that culture is entirely a voluntary uh ethical mode secondly i think there are different types of culture like um something can be entirely regional like whatever, you know, a, a type of cooking or a type of artwork. But then other things can be a lot more wide reaching. Like, you know, the, the biggest thing I can think of is like the Christian, uh, the prevalence of Christianity in the West. That is uh, spread an incredible amount of uh, land. But it doesn't also mean that other aspects of culture can coexist with Christianity and not interfere with it. Um, and I mean, that can be, you know, you can be Christian and eat 
XYZ food while other Christians can eat something entirely different and still be Christian. Uh, so I, I think that, well, that muddies so the, thing, the water a little bit. But Yeah, the thing with that is uh, Christianity really is not a, a culture unto itself. And I think modern church history and the current state of United States culture, quote-unquote, if we claim the United States has a culture at all, sort of immediately disproves that. Because the phenomena that's known as the cultural Christian has little to do with, generally speaking, the practices of an actual practicing Christian. Is that, is that out of line, or does that make sense? I no, I understand. Yeah, I agree. But, I mean, like, maybe Judaism is a better example. There are plenty of, of uh, culturally Jewish people, while they don't practice Judaism. But another example is just like the prevalence of quote-unquote American culture, like we were talking about Westerns earlier. And uh, yes, just we think, about, think about all the great spaghetti Westerns that were produced and filmed in Italy. Some of the real classics, the deep cuts, the hits. So, oh, yeah. I, I think it might be fair to say that in the manufactured mythos of American culture, the spaghetti western is a staple. And, you know, yeah. not to get too woke on you guys being away from my home show, uh -oh. but I might even posit that that is intentionally engineered and that a lot of our mores and cultural t traditions here in the U.S. were explicitly manufactured to try and artificially... Um, hmm. I'm going to use a goofy word here, but I think it's a completely correct one in context. To artificially inseminate these concepts into our cultural landscape. Well, I want to get into that, but before we do, I, I do want to um, kind of drill down on what your thoughts on or what your thoughts are in terms of uh, what defines uh, a, like a naturally occurring or, or a uh, like a, like an actual culture uh, and and how that's uh, how that grows and uh, like what what makes it original, I guess. So I think the two biggest factors. And there's a lot of factors, but the two biggest ones are the age of a consistent, if evolving, practice and its ability to transmit from a core culture and take roots in other cultures that it sees contact with. And I want to use as the perfect example for this the idea of the English common law tradition. You know, English common law goes back as far as the Magna Carta. And it's mm -hmm. sort of the bedrock that the Anglosphere as a whole is built on. And I think that's the perfect example, because even before they were formalized into code, these were the legal traditions. These were the mores and the practices that the society accepted. And even as other people have encountered these practices, they've adopted them. You know, the transmission of that practice has been accepted. So, you know, it, it's got, it's proven its staying power over time, and it's proven its transmissibility while still being most prevalent in the core it developed in. And I think those are the two signifiers of a real culture, is its ability to stand the test of a great length of time and its transmissibility. No, that makes sense. So uh, we, we do have that tradition, um, I, I, I would say at least uh, in the U.S., but that, like you're saying, that does come from uh, English history. Um, so yeah, that that would be interesting. I, I I'm I'm trying to think of something that people would argue is uniquely American. Uh, that is um, transmutable, and uh, you know, we'll, we'll try to say. Uh, stands the test of time but being that the country is only just over 200 years old uh you know that that you can call that into question uh 
Yeah, and that's exactly my problem with it. You know, we haven't been around truly long enough to have our own bedrock customs yet. The only thing that we've been doing consistently as a people since the United States separated itself formally from the United Kingdom is meddling in places overseas. But that's not even unique to our culture because we got that from the Anglosphere too. Oh yeah, it's just like the uh, the, the torch was passed from uh, from Great Britain to us. That's exactly what happened. So you know, again, for those reasons, you know, I think it's far too premature to conclude that the U.S. has its own culture to this point. Now. You know, if there's other things we need to talk about first, let's do it. Because I do think we also need to discuss the artificial creation of U.S. culture at some point, too, though perhaps later in the program. Yeah. The other thing to mention is that, you know, you say that the uh, American government is a little over 200 years old. But that that, that doesn't also mean that uh, all the states are that old. You know, there are some states that are significantly younger than the inception of America. And, I mean, if, if one country, if, uh, if per se, Russia were to absorb the Ukraine, that does not mean that the Ukrainians would instantly see themselves as Russian and completely... Uh, mix their history to the point where they view Russian history as their own. And Absolutely. I'm not saying I'm not saying somebody born and raised in Alaska, uh, they probably do see American history as their own. I do not necessarily think they should, but uh, that that goes back to your idea of like the artificial creation of the American culture, at least the uh, distributing it amongst uh, newer states. Sure, sure. And, you know, I think the U.S. is going to see a great deal of problems in trying to create its own culture on the world for just that reason, too. Our states and the territories that constitute them, which are more important than the lines that the government puts on the map, dictate far more about the culture of folk in a given reason, region rather, than the state borders and state histories ever could. You know, we talk about Cajun culture. We talk about the Rust Belt blue-collar traditions. There's the New England aristocracy and the founding families sort of meme. You know, the U.S. does have cultures within it, but there's no pan-American culture, at least in my view. No, for sure. Uh, The U.S. is is far too large an area, I would say, and uh, far too diverse um, to have that unified culture, like you're saying. So now with all that being said, well, I don't know. I don't want to trample on you guys here too much. Is there anything there that you want to riff on or that we should riff on a little bit? I mean, Not I'm, that I can think of at the moment. No, I'm good into, uh, or I'm good with getting into uh, your thoughts on uh, how the, uh, how our culture is artificially, uh, I guess, produced or steered. So I think the important thing to really look at here is how we view our traditions of freedom in the U.S. and whether or not those are practically implemented really anywhere. You know, and this all goes back to the platonic ideals in the Republic, right? There's this grandiose founding mythos, and it's all basically fabricated. You know, we had these great libertarian traditions and these great freedom-seeking values, and they were really only practiced for, what, the first 80 or so years of our national history? But we keep heralding them. 
we teach them to all of our students in the prisons that we call a school system and we glorify them constantly in all of our national holidays you know rightfully so because they're great ideals but they are in no way functionally practiced by the pan u.s population by the great normie masses and so i think that for those reasons we have to be extremely skeptical about calling it an american culture because while it is a subculture that we obviously here value very highly especially on programs like this there's no reason to believe that you know most people around the world could look at those claims and see them as quintessentially american at least i don't think so but we do make a very conscious effort to uh, market ourselves that way globally so perhaps in time it could develop that way but i do think that going back to earlier discussions about what constitutes a culture a culture does have to be lived practices as well so unless those actually take root somewhere and you see attempts at it, like the Free State Project in New Hampshire, unless those are actively lived in places, they they can't constitute what we call a culture. I, I will say that, um, in, historically speaking, uh, if, you, if you read uh, something like Rothbard's Conceived in Liberty, um, he, he talks about how Americans were, uh, they have this libertarian bent but I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that most of the time the, uh, the state just couldn't exercise much authority over, uh, Americans in general. Absolutely. Absolutely. We were only living free because we had so much frontier to run to. And now the U S is virtually out of frontier by virtue of the government buying up and continuing to own the land that would be considered a frontier. Virtually the only free places left in the U.S., territorially speaking, are the wastes of Alaska. No, yeah, I, I have to agree with that. Um, and and I, I think that for, uh, like, e- either in terms of having a culture of liberty, uh, Either you have to be used to that um, that that absence of uh, state authority of uh, yeah of, of seeing like state uh, the state apparatus being constantly in your life, or you have to be seeing that and actively fighting against it. And uh, we haven't seen either in the U.S um for a very long time absolutely you know there's really nothing you can even plausibly make the argument for either i think the last real great example at least that i'm aware of i'm sure there's others is something like the battle of athens shortly after world war ii where returning gis took it upon themselves to basically depose a corrupt local government and you know even then they only instituted their own good old boys network but yeah that that's a that's a great example um but yeah like you say um it always seems to end up being only a a slightly better version of of what was uh what was there before and um even when you talk about the american revolution you're just talking about a uh a switching out of the aristocracy and uh, of the elites. You're, you're switching out your your old British um, aristocracy for the uh, newer American uh, American one. Yeah, you got the explicitly defeudalized, but still landed gentry, and just replaced it with a new blood sort of gentry of their own. And really, you know, not to get, again, too incredibly woke here on your podcast, but the sort of New England proper aristocracy still more or less rules this country. And they're seeing their own intra-civil war, culturally speaking, 
with their own set of upstarts, I think, in the sort of uh, left-coast tech bro rising aristocracy, as they've been around now long enough to start becoming landed themselves. But, you know, it, it's still very much those traditions in which the people with the greatest amount of influence through land and business assets held get to determine what they want to try and make the culture in a given place. And then it becomes a matter of whether or not the surf class, whether the vast majority of the population accepts it and then takes whatever that sort of presented and constructed culture is or whether they forge one of their own. And I have to say that it's pretty evident in world history that by and large, people have accepted the national mythos of wherever they choose to live and accept the national traditions and practices that are handed to them by their ruling elite, by their state apparatus. But most of that is symptomatic of those um, systems having been in place for so long. So the U.S., while it does not have its own culture yet, really does have a fairly unique opportunity to forge its own culture because it's not too late to do so yet, unlike a lot of places. But I'm not entirely sure that would be a good thing. I'm not necessarily saying it would be either, because I think the average American has a huge authoritarian bent. You know, I think the New England Puritan is a more accurate national stereotype for us than the Tea Party freedom fighter is. Yeah, like, here's a theory I have. Uh, I believe, as as a bit of a preface, that people, like, you know, you, you got a dude that is of Norwegian descent or of Danish descent, let's say. And, um, you know, he, he doesn't do that much that is useful, but he is entirely wrapped up in his Viking ancestors. Uh, and I believe that it makes people a bit complacent. Like, I have a friend that is of Irish descent, and he went to vote. And he uh, did not recognize any of the uh, the names for the local school board, and uh, but one of them, one of their last names was like O'Brien. So he's like, oh, he's Irish, so he must be a good dude. And uh, man, that that's crazy to me. But I think it makes people a bit complacent. So possibly to get into the theory. I think that maybe this quote-unquote American culture might have been manufactured to give people some undue pride in their society, but they see that as uh, being synonymous with their government. So that's what gives them their authoritarian bent. You know, whatever the government's doing, you know, hey, we beat the British. You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, let's let's carry on that tradition with the U.S. government. You know, we got the separation of powers. It's that's that's basically a uh, ideological saint. So it'll work itself out because, you know, the founding fathers did X, Y, Z to blah, blah, blah. And uh, it, I, the core of it is I think it just makes people complacent and just whatever happens, happens. And they're not going to argue or fight about it. Yeah, I could not agree more. I think you're right on the money there. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, as someone who has uh, lived overseas, I, like it to me, that's especially, um, it's something that I, especially I have noticed um, being that I did not really grow up uh, in the U.S., but um, so I, I kind of viewed um, American culture or Americans uh, from a bit of an outsider perspective, but it was pretty easy to, I guess, see um, kind, of, kind of how Americans view their culture uh, from that outsider perspective. And it, it's, it's very simple and, um, you know, easy to adopt. And and like you're saying, it's, uh, it's, um, based on, on a few things like on, you know, on these little, uh, mantras, these little, uh, 
ideas that oh we uh we beat the british and we love freedom and uh <laughs> you know we're, we're capitalist it's it's uh it's it's very simple i would i would say um it's basically the yeah, whole marketing like tactic of uh turning point usa oh yeah talk about <laughs> cringe jesus <laughs> no thank you <laughs> I, I i have a like a simple phrase that can that can sum it up people focus more on rememberable events and ideas of the past to the point where they do not pay attention to what is happening to those events and ideas in the present. Sure. Absolutely. But again, yeah. that just goes right yeah. back to the, again, I keep harping on it, but the manufactured nature of it, you know, again, going back to what Plato wrote in the Republic, it's all manufactured with a very explicit purpose. We are given these national mythos and these ideals from the top, from people who believe themselves to be philosopher kings. And, you know, he wrote all about that in the context of the soul and searching for justice, but to ignore the explicitly political drive of the examples he used, I think would be foolish because we see them acted out every single day and in the history of everything everywhere. Yeah, Rousseau well, basically uh, said the same thing. He said, you know, the power is incredibly arbitrary and it is guided by the general will of the people, the sovereign. No, yeah, uh, unless you want to uh, say anything more, I, I, I say that we get into uh, how the U.S., uh, how our, our culture or, uh, yeah, how our culture is basically um, manufactured. Uh, you were talking earlier about how we still have that um, New England um, founding fathers, uh, uh, aristocracy is still present in the U.S. Um, did you want to get into that and uh, maybe talk about some of the sources uh, or, 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 yeah, some of the things you've read that uh, maybe the listeners can, uh, if they can get into some of that if, uh, if they're interested? Well, I think it'll depend on kind of how you mean. Because when I reference that in the context of this cultural discussion, I really am just talking about how, you know, those were the first drivers of what would become what we're told is American culture. You know, they were the most populated parts of the early American experiment. And I think that that's really what a lot of the responsibility is. They've just had the most time to sit there to accumulate land, power, and influence. So that just naturally gives mm -hmm. them the first chance to set their preferences and then to inflict those preferences on us. And while I think that, again, they've done a very good job of projecting the cult of liberty and what I would like to see become our actual culture of liberty, I think the revealed preference of New England governance reveals that they are actually much closer in line with the sort of puritanical exile colonies that founded a lot of them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I, I think it's interesting, uh, what, what you were talking about just now with, uh, the, their idea of Liberty and, and kind of how it's portrayed. Um, I, <laughs> It seems to me that most Americans like don't know what liberty is, and we have this very uh, well, basically our idea of liberty, um, or or the normie idea of liberty, is a bit perverse in a way, uh, and uh, you know the the powers that be, they, they pay lip service to it and, and they'll use it uh, when it suits their purposes. Um, but yeah, it, it's, um, it's part of our heritage, but yeah, like you're saying, um, it, it's very, uh, I'm having a hard time describing it, but yeah, it's, it's very, uh, like it's used against us um, and, and purposely not 
defined correctly. Yeah, I was going to say that like the modern definition of liberty is either like this ethereal idea that nobody has a firm grasp on and nobody's going to bother uh, define, or like in the case of most modern day conservatism, liberty is whatever we have right now, no more. You know, as if like, like before uh, the Patriot Act was passed, that was an authoritarian thing. But after it was passed, oh, it's in America, so it must be part of liberty because, you know, it's America. Uh, I yeah, do the mention, uh, Department of Homeland Security is here to promote and protect your freedom. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> I also want to mention that in my mind, two New England authors that were still in line with the founding ideas, whatever those were, uh, were Ralph Waldo Emerson and in particular, uh, Henry David Thoreau. And uh, he wrote his famous uh, essay called Civil Disobedience. He wrote it in a jail cell as he was uh, sent to jail for not paying his taxes because he disagreed with, I forget the war, but there was a war. And uh, Would that's that pretty bad. Would that have been the Mexican-American war? It very well might have been. Um, I do not remember. but uh, And then there's also the theory that... Uh, a lot of Americans, I think Pete Raymond had a guy on that was talking about how, uh, uh, oh, what's his name? Um, the president before FDR, Woodrow Wilson, uh, was part of this group that was still loyal to the uh, English crown. And that might be that Puritanism there. I'm not sure if uh, that falls in line with that theory. but. Uh, that's also worth contending with and question. Yeah, uh, I, I would say that um, there, there is, there is that um, these certain American presidents who were definitely uh, in that uh, Anglophile tradition. Uh, I know for sure that Woodrow Wilson, uh, he was actually, I would say, obsessed with. Um, the, like how the British ran things, the British system, and uh, he he uh, worked his hardest to to get us closer to that. Yeah, you know, and that's actually really good conspiracy bait, and it might be a topic for another future conversation. But you're exactly right in that in that sort of again that Wilsonian puritanical progressive tradition is really the oldest American character. And as you're saying, we can see it in our leaders even up to recent history. And again, to keep borrowing the term from economics, that's the revealed preference of our ruling class, regardless of what they tell us. That's obviously what they want out of us as a population. And it's, again, becoming our question as to whether or not we want to roll over and accept that or to forge our own regional or even pan-regional american culture yeah um it, it, it's interesting uh why why do you think that uh when you talk about the puritan culture right it's very disciplined um it, it rejects uh i guess worldly worldly values um and, and uh it, it values uh abstinence of uh you know several different things um why 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 is it do you think that that puritan um uh oh ethic is so um why why do you think that it's been retained and and how do you think that it's used by uh the elite and and the the people that are trying to uh define and and uh steer our culture well i think it's being used by them because that's what they've allowed to soak into their regional character themselves you know they've been steeped in it since their own coming up and with each generation going back to when they were actual puritans i would emphasize personally that i think it has more to do with the features of puritanism 
than the values of Puritanism itself. You know, it's that strict, like you were saying, disciplinary streak. It's that sort of authoritarianism of the spirit more than the body. And they've substituted the religious values of it for whatever is most suited to them for maintaining the control mechanism. And I think as cultural standards for a class of people who are already in power and in control, that makes it a natural choice. Because it's a lot easier to rule people who believe they need to be ruled than it is to try and rule over and administrate a culture of free men. Yeah, and um, if you were to look at uh, the most elite private schools, um, and I'm referring to pre, uh, pre not, not colleges, but uh, like high schools and such um, in the U.S., the most elite uh, private schools in the U.S., um, a lot of them are like re- religious uh, religious schools in in at least their uh, their founding, and they carry on that tradition in in one way or another. And um, while I like I am a I am a Christian myself, uh, I do see how uh like religion can be uh it, it it can be twisted and um and used for uh like like a perverted uh purposes um for instance uh what i'm trying to get at here is uh you, you get this uh when when you're talking about something like the uh the social gospel or, or something like that uh people are trying to uh change society using uh state authority and uh they're trying to i guess uh, uh yeah, they're they're trying to uh, shape society in in their direction, and uh, in a way, uh, I feel like it's like it's a way of uh, um, I guess a a salvation <laughs> for them, or uh, at least. Uh, like it's a self-righteousness thing, you know? Sure. And I think part of that goes back to what I was saying, though, about it being about the features and the components of that sort of lifestyle more than the actual values of it. Because mm-hmm. it's not... It's about wanting... It's convenient. Right, it's about wanting to replicate those sorts of behaviors on a mass scale and those sort of ingrained expectations of behavior than it is more than anything else yeah because if, if if you do uh perpetrate that puritanical culture then you're really curbing on um a, a free well on a people's uh ability to create culture if that makes sense it makes perfect sense and i couldn't agree more do you have any thoughts cotton you've been a quiet here a little bit now yeah i uh i have heard that not only from um just kind of general online discourse but uh i've heard that from some very intelligent people and it's i i noticed that topic coming up more and more in conversation and it's kind of a uh a crime i haven't delved deeper into that uh theory but from what i hear it makes a hell of a lot of sense uh how do you think the skull and bro- uh, crossbones frat comes into this yeah skull and bones my man skull and bones <laughs> yeah the skull and bones my bad. Well, i think more than anything else they are a selection process for induction into the upper echelons of that sort of New England aristocracy 
Yeah. And I think that that has very little to do with practicing this culture they want to push on us so much as choosing who will be their agents of its distribution. And they are yeah. certainly not the only selection filter for those individuals, but they are one of the most prominent ones, especially in more recent history. Yet no one knows about them. Or at least not, not that I can... People in the group know about them, but right. not normies. Well, no, and they, they never will. That's the eternal struggle of people like me, right? We can bleat and moan all we want about all this stuff that's going on in the background, but ultimately it goes, again, back to what we were saying about the cultural control mechanisms. There's just simply no way to wake someone up unless they want to be woke. It, it's amazing that most Americans don't know that in 2004, George Bush and uh, John Kerry... Yeah who are basically frat brothers ran against each other uh, for, <laughs> for the presidency. Yeah. You know, it hardly matters whether or not that he shared uh, skin deep ideological differences when they were both sleeping in coffins and jerking off onto the same Ritz crackers. Right. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of which, uh, uh Oh, on a fun, on a fun, what? <laughs> on a fun, hey, no, okay, yeah, no, <laughs> on, on a, on a funny note, I don't know if you guys have, uh, have seen, uh, have seen this, but on, on YouTube, uh, the, the comedy show, Whitest Kids You Know. I have not. Uh, oh man. Oh, okay. Well, there's, there's one video out there, uh, entitled, um, Trevor Talks to Kids. And uh, it's it's the comedian Trevor Moore, and uh, he does this video, and he and he talks about uh, these different conspiracy theories, and and one of them is uh, talking about how uh, George Bush Senior uh, <laughs> requested to um, to uh, be there for his son's induction <laughs> into the Skull and Bones, and that probably involved him watching his son jerk off. <laughs> Yeah. And pa- pause. You know, and I, we, I we don't. Go ahead, Kevin. That, that that video is right up your alley, man. That's a great. That's a great <laughs> sketch. I will. I will have to check it out as soon as we're done recording here. But yeah. And that one's going in the show notes, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. I'll go in the show notes. I just wish we knew more about the actual internal practices of the skull and bones. Because really, a lot of it just is speculation and, you know, leaked documents of varying authenticity. But they they really are one of the boogeymen groups at the center of this sort of Puritan cabal that rules us from the woods and lakes of New England. Well, that's like um, Bohemian Grove, right? Like, we know very little about it, except like what the stuff uh, Alex Jones recorded back in a day yeah we know very very little about it there's been a couple of actual attendance roles that have been put out to the public whether or not those are complete and full is up for debate whether or not any of the past ones have been is also up for debate all we really know about it is that nixon called it what he called it and even then (laughs) What the hell does that even mean? Because he still attended anyways. You know? Yeah. So I think the real that means he's the pot calling the kettle black. Exactly. Exactly. So it's... We know, we know these groups because we've been able to find just enough to prove that they exist. But again, the function of them is virtually actually unknown. And it's a matter of deductive reasoning to try and figure out what the hell they're up to. And we're, I guess we're a little in the weeds here, but, you know, I think that those two are the biggest boogeyman groups, again, I'm going to keep using that word, to keep in mind from a specifically American perspective. Because there's a lot of international groups, too. But the ones you have to keep your eye on are the ones that are trying to engineer the public here in the U.S. You know, that's where we are, and that's the subject we're talking about tonight, is the control mechanism of American culture. 
And the Bohemian Grove, too, I think, is a little bit more of an international group. You know, they take membership from all over the place. But the Skull and Bones is a almost entirely American and certainly entirely subsided within the Anglosphere tradition. I um, I'm, don't want to get further into the weeds, but I'm taking a shot in the dark here because I've never read it. Uh, how do you think... Um... Oh, uh, the uh, Sterner book. What's it called? Uh, the Ego and Its Own, I think. That's his big work. Yeah, his seminal treatise. Yeah, do you think that fits into this a bit? I will be horrifically blunt with you and say I don't know because I have not read Sterner personally. Okay. Because I hear a lot about uh, spooks in relation to cultural icons and ideas. And I'm not incredibly sure what the definition of it is, but I think, uh, I think it fit in this conversation. What about propaganda by Bernays? Uh, nope. Sorry. I apologize. <laughs> uh, but I, I can answer that question a little bit about spooks. You know, the idea of spooks in the Sternerite egoist tradition is really just the idea of the things that you let have free real estate in your head and the ideas that you let become deterministic in your actions, whether they have any right to or not. You know, it's about very much so controlling your own thought process, controlling how you will act upon the world instead of letting the ideas that get lodged in your head do it. Okay, so it's kind of like outsourcing ethics a bit. When you allow spooks to be present, that's what it is. But the point of Sternerism is to not allow it. Yeah, yeah. Hmm. Earlier, you mentioned uh, like the West Coast tech bros. Um, how do you think that they fit into? Um, how, how do you think that they? How do you think they fit into uh, shaping uh, culture? I think that they are a rising insurgent power against this sort of New England Puritan structure. And I do not think that their rule would be any for the better. I just think that they are the next supra class, the next strata of American society that will have accumulated enough institutional influence and actual landed power to be able to just contest that control system is what I'm getting at. Okay, so th- so they're more competitors. Uh, they they than... are the next pretender to the throne, is what they are, yeah. Okay. Who are we talking about? Tech culture. Okay, right, yeah. Yeah, that's some spooky stuff, man. Like, I... You know, I, I, think, know, a lot uh, of libertari- I know a lot of libertarians actually really like Peter Thiel. But I'll be honest, yeah. that dude <laughs> sketches me the fuck out. Yeah, me too. Yeah. You know, the yeah. fact that he's like actually doing the whole regular blood transfusions to keep himself young, <laughs> the literal scientific vampirism shit, it's yeah. That is him, right? I'm not misattributing that. No, yeah. Because I know I, a lot of people do it, but I think he's one of the big practitioners too. I think he does it, and I think um, Jeff Bezos does it as well. Hormone replacement therapy. Good night. Yeah, dude, these people are literal vampires. They (laughs) absolutely are. And, you know, again, they are... Really, this is why the idea of Lockean homesteading and being able to mix property with labor to make it your own is so important. Because while these class stratas will not allow us to practice this, That is exactly what gives them the ability to vie for control of what our cultural standards will be. That is really interesting, Uh, trying to uh, extend the, okay, trying to extend the idea of homesteading to culture. That is, uh, I'd never thought of it that way, but hell yeah, That, uh, that works perfectly. It's 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 like um, it, it's back to the spook thing, you know. It's what 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 do you allow to uh, have free reign in your mind? 
Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's exactly the point, right? You know, what ideas will you permit to become dominant in your own soulscape? And these people, these people think they're vying for control over our souls via our minds. And, you know, we just, we can't permit that. The problem is they hold all the physical assets to be able to marshal resources to do it. Yeah. And that, that kind of goes back to, uh, um, what I said earlier about culture being like a voluntary practice, uh, you know, just because you're born in America, we see it all the time. Just because you're born in America doesn't mean you necessarily have a, uh, wholly American personal, uh, attachment in the same sense as a lot of people might. Um, but I, I think a lot of people don't see it that way, even though it is, uh, they see it as, I'll take my, myself, for example, you know, to most people, Louisiana has a incredibly specific culture and, but it does not, you know, what most people think is Louisiana culture is South Louisiana culture. And in particular, uh, Southeast Louisiana culture. Yeah. The Bayou Rose, the Cajun culture. Exactly. And then, you know, the further north you get in the state, the less you see of that. You still see it, but it's not nearly as prevalent as it is in places like New Orleans. Um, but, uh, I, oh, damn, I forgot where I was going with this. Well, I just have to say, for what it's worth, I'm a little bit jealous of the Cajuns. Because even that culture itself got its start up in Canada. And at the yeah. Wisconsin fur trading outposts until they got pushed out of the top of the Mississippi and had to float all the way down river. And I wish we'd retained a little bit of it up here because I absolutely love the cooking. <laughs> oh yeah, man. <laughs> you ever had a coffee with chicory in it? I've not had the chicory coffee, but really I'm specifically thinking about gator because oh, I yeah. love gator. Well, I will say that that is not, as prevalent here anymore um you'll probably find more restaurants serving gator in florida but you know you do find a hell of a lot of uh i mean catfish is a big thing down here that you can get anywhere uh boudin shame (laughs) i mean i've had gator here i've had gator in northern louisiana so i mean it's still there you can still find it fairly easily but it's probably not as easy as it once was uh, yeah, return to tradition, man. Don't let that shit go. Yeah, and that, that's what I was uh, going to say about chicory coffee, because, like, the story is, in the Great Depression, people in the South would add this chicory to uh, uh, just kind of up the volume of coffee. They basically cut the coffee because less uh, actual coffee beans were available, and it added this very specific flavor profile and it has become a uh i mean that's all what some people drink down here i mean you can in damn near every grocery store you can go buy some cafe dumont uh coffee with chicory in it and it's pretty awesome so we're gonna get totally off topic here but i have to ask what is the flavor profile of chicory coffee though because it's something i would be interested in trying um, it has a, uh, a bitter taste. Uh, it tastes like, um, I don't know, like, you know, when you maybe, um, like chicory itself is a, uh, just a plant. It's not necessarily a, uh, like most people, when they drink it, they think it's wood because it has a very woody flavor but it's actually a flower and it i I don't want to i don't necessarily want to get hung up on this because it's going to sound bad but it tastes like bark a bit but it is it's it's really good it's kind of hard to explain it makes it taste a bit tanniny maybe just a bit bitter maybe a bit more acidic okay so those those are all good keywords Because if you had persisted down the woody route, and I know you didn't, but if you had, my next line of question would have been, are you talking like oaky 
sort of flavor or whatnot, and obviously that's not the case, so I'm glad you corrected me preemptively. There. Yeah, it's not as sweet as uh, like what a oaky coffee would taste like, or it's definitely not as sweet as like what a maple or pecan coffee would taste like. Um, okay. You know, I'll, I'll retract that last bit. It might taste a bit like pecan, uh, but like a very bitter pecan. Interesting. Speaking of bitter, uh, you guys have made this transition back to our line of <laughs> our, our topic. Uh, very difficult for me. I've been sitting here this whole time trying to figure it out. Um, <laughs> but to wrap it up, um, I think I hear a car alarm in the background. I don't. That's just the NSA coming for you. That's right. Hey-o. Um, but anyway, to to wrap up, um, one thing that I wanted to talk about was, um, well, first of all, how do you think that we can um, fight the uh, the propaganda and and the the shaping of our culture by? The, uh, the elites and um, specifically, do you think that um, the internet is a good uh, tool for that or is that more of a, well, it, it's a tool for it definitely, but how much, uh, how much of a tool um, for the elites is it and, and can it be um, subverted? I mean, I think it can, but um, I'm pretty paranoid in terms of uh, <laughs> like like uh, its potential and and how it can be uh, subverted on us. Yeah, so I think that you are rightfully paranoid. I do think that it can be actively subverted and used as a tool for us and for our causes, but only when you are very specifically disseminating your own information and creating decentralized anti-fragile social networks, you know, jerking ourselves and our egos off on Twitter, fighting with retards is not an effective use of the internet. That's what they want you to use. it. You know, all the real work being done with the internet is happening with people like, uh, you know, the 3d printers and the secret key based chat groups. You know, that's where the real value of the internet is. It's not on the forward-facing social networks. But the uh, real key to fighting back is not any part of the internet either. The real key to fighting back is what I was saying earlier about recognizing that you have to homestead your own mind and where you have the uh, consent to do so, to homestead the mind of others. You need to live the culture of the natural myth because they don't want you to actually live it, only merely to believe it. Yeah, you need to live the culture of the natural myth. Uh, yeah, can, can you explain that a little bit for me? Yeah, so it's, it's like we've been saying throughout, right? They've given us this national mythos and then disallowed mm, us yeah, from yeah. practicing it through the authoritarian mm. control structures. But the problem is, in creating that national myth, the sort of double-edged blade of it is, is that if enough national myth. if enough people practice it, if enough people use it, then they do in fact lose control, and we in- integrate it into ourselves and into our own practices. And that's what we need to be doing. You know, it, it's not n- merely enough to live something as a matter of faith or belief or to accept something as a matter of belief or faith, but you also then have to put it into practice and to actively live it. You know, it's that sort of t-shirt slogan you see floating around on libertarian uh, merchandise sites. You need to become ungovernable. Yeah, it's it's taking that, uh, the, the, the cultural tropes uh, and, and actually living it out. Exactly, yeah. yes. Uh, Cotton, did you have any final thoughts? Um, I think that uh, 
if you do not have just to kind of rephrase what Paz said, I think that if you do not enact the ethical, in the classical sense, the ethical uh, extensions of a particular culture, then it is not necessarily your culture. It's more of just like a a mind application that you cannot act upon. Um, and it's I think that malware sitting in your wet works. Yes. Yes, exactly. And I think that if you do not engage upon that culture, then it is more, it's it's not only useless, but it's more of just something that's taking up space rather than uh, helping you in any way. Yeah, and um, kind of my, my final thoughts here is uh, I would encourage the listeners to, to take one, uh, one uh action or uh take take one of the ways that you can uh homestead your mind uh and and uh put your your ethics um into action whether you know that be uh some method uh of agorism or or whatever whatever it is um growing a garden uh, starting a side hustle. Um, Actually, taking your guns to the range. Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, just you know, something beyond like what you were saying is you know arguing on the what we all like to do is argue on the internet and uh, call people status and and own own uh, the libs normies right <laughs> own the libs. Buy more right? libs. <laughs> But yeah, I, I would just encourage the listeners to to take the one thing that um, interests them the most in terms of a uh, state sub uh, state subverting um, activities and, and try to apply that um, in the coming months. And uh, you know that that's how you know if we have any chance of seeing more liberty in our lifetime. You have to you have to put your beliefs into practice and um and, and that's yeah that that's how we're gonna get out of this eventually in in my opinion um pause i'll I'll turn it over to you uh for any final thoughts that you have and then uh let's uh let's hear your plugs yeah I think I did a pretty good job of blasting out my actual thoughts here i I'm sure that I will have more in the coming days because my brain just doesn't turn off even when I want it to. But uh, I think that about covers it for now, though, if you'll permit me to transition to plugs. Go for it. I am one of the hosts of the Gaslight Hour podcast. You can find us on most podcatchers. We have been dropping a lot of episodes recently, so please go listen to them. I also have a library channel, that's the LBRY.TV, where I archive all my guest podcast appearances after they drop with whoever actually recorded them. I am most prevalent on the social media platform known as Twitter, where you can find me at DogmanRespector. And if any of you out there are podcast hosts, please have me on your show. I will go anywhere and I will talk about anything. And, uh, you know, even if you've just got casual questions for me, I am pretty open to discussing anything with anyone, you know, provided it's not excessively degenerate or anything. <laughs> I, I have one more thing to say. Um, I've, I've mentioned this book a lot on the show, but uh, I'd recommend everybody read F.A. Hayek's The Fatal Conceit, because he talks a good bit about how nature interplays with culture and uh it's an incredibly fascinating read and it's not that long so yeah uh, actually on that note if i could just give one more plug i will sure. say that probably the biggest influence on my development as a libertarian was the sci-fi author robert heinlein and a lot of what I think about culture and the creation of culture 
actually comes from his seminal work, The Moon is a Harsh Mistress. Yeah. So if you if your listenership has not read it yet, they really should immediately. It's a wonderful book. It's a very fun story. And when you let it sort of do in your brain, you will come out of it significantly more anarchist and significantly more well-informed than you would reading any given piece of theory, in my opinion. Well, man, it was a great conversation. Yeah, thank you. We we appreciate you coming on. Thank you so, so much for having me. I really enjoyed chatting with the two of you. I think this was a super productive and super enjoyable conversation. Yeah, and I definitely think you'll be a repeat guest here on Dissecting Liberty. Hell yeah. All right, thank you, gentlemen. All right, man, talk to you later. Oh, wait. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's going in. This is uh, Liberty Zero reminding you to zero your rifle. And this is Cotton Arcus reminding you to pick cotton voluntarily.